Hi, my name is Kim Wilkins, and I'm a graduate student at the School of Education at the University of Virginia. I'm studying curriculum and instruction with a focus on innovation and computer science education. This series of podcast episodes is all about bringing computer science education research into the K-8 classroom. All right, well, welcome back, everybody. I am, again, super excited for this guest because I feel like I've been following Suchi Grover on Twitter for a long time and have learned so much from you just through that interaction. So I'm super excited that you're here in person and that I can learn from you directly. So welcome. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I will keep the conversation, you know, focused on my professional self (laughs) and my journey uh, as a computer science education researcher, which is how I primarily identify myself. That and a learning scientist. So I have had a background both in computer science and the learning sciences over the years. Not very unlike yourself, I sort of came into computing education research a little later. I started my career as a software engineer. I had my undergrad and graduate degrees in computer science. But at around the turn of the century, I switched to education. And my life as a computer science education researcher sort of began in 2009 when I started my PhD at Stanford in learning sciences and technology design. But, you know, the field of learning sciences, anybody that does anything deeply in that will realize that you always contextualize your research in the context of learning of something. Mm-hmm. And, and so you'll find learning scientists focusing on, say, mathematics education or science education or, you know, diff- different topics. And for me, computer science education was a very natural area to sort of focus on because of the fact that I'd had disciplinary training in computer science and I'd worked as a software engineer until about 2003. I had switched to education when I did my master's at Harvard and there was a little bit of time between my master's and PhD, not little, it was about six years, during which time I was working as a technology integration specialist, but also working on creating, you know, after school experiences in robotics and programming and digital storytelling. And it was sort of the web 2.0 kind of, you know, technology integration where programming was not so far off. Scratch sort of came out around that time in 2007, six and seven. And I had already sort of forged relationships with MIT Media Lab during my time at Harvard through certain projects that were going on there. And so I was aware of these interesting tools that you could sort of bring into the hands of children that would sort of facilitate computational experiences, programming, robotics, those kinds of things. And it was all a very exciting time, actually. And so the journey into becoming a full-time researcher was almost organic in the sense that when you get so deep, you either go into teaching it all the time, or you sort of want to just examine it further and sort of help the field more broadly. And and it also dovetailed, my, my PhD sort of dovetailed with this whole CS for all thing sort of burgeoning. And so, you know, there was so much happening in sort of every sector, whether it was the after school, the in school, at the policy level, it was all happening around that time. And so, you know, 
it seemed like a good place to sort of focus my dissertation on. It seemed timely. Yeah, <laughs> oh, for sure. Like, it's, yeah, it seems like you were in the sort of center of all that going on, which I feel like I came to it just a little after and was like, okay, how do I... <laughs> How, How do, do you I fit yourself <laughs> in and, and make yourself? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that's great. I picked a couple of uh, a paper and a chapter of a book, especially related to some stuff you've been doing with assessment. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to admit to you that assessment is not my favorite thing. I was at an independent school when I was teaching. So, you know, we didn't have to do standardized testing. There was no high stakes testing. Um, I think that's the part that I really hate. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We, we share that we share that feeling okay all right um but I think sometimes I can't take that uh feeling away from just assessment in general and I'm actually right. taking an assessment course now where I am especially formative assessment I am really realizing oh there's so much more I could do there um, so I'm, I'm coming on board with that and I'm hoping maybe you can help Others come on board with that because absolutely no, I have been. And in fact, when I saw those two papers, I was like, maybe I should have suggested that other paper, which I just wrote two years ago. Well, it, it was at 6 2020 on formative assessment, but we'll, we'll, we'll come to that as well. Yeah. <laughs> the book chapter sort of is one of my first experiences that led me into thinking more deeply about assessment during the learning process. So that's a fine place to start. All right. Awesome. So the two papers, one is a designing an assessment for introductory programming concepts in middle school computer science. Mm-hmm. And um, that one I picked. So these are actually two papers that I cited, which is the kind of other thing I've been using when I'm talking to folks is here's here's papers that were important to me because they had some information I, I needed. And especially looking at middle school computer science, you know, whether it's integrated or it's a standalone thing, because again, we have these state standards, but I don't think any state is actually infusing computer science into their testing, which is sort of a, you know, a good thing and a bad a thing. thing. <laughs> but then how do you make sure that the kids are, Learning. you know, one, one quote I took out is without sufficient attention to thoughtful assessment, computer science can have little hope of scaling in K-12. And I really hadn't thought about it that way. Like, oh, right. If we don't help teachers do this, like they're also, they also need that help. Yeah, exactly. So that that first, just a little backdrop to that first uh, paper there, that was an NSF, one of my first NSF funded research projects that I began when I started my post PhD research career at SRI International. And there we were sort of thinking about coming at pedagogy for teaching programming with ideas from mathematics. And that's one of the things I think as a field we can do more broadly. There has been so much research in, you know, so many other disciplines because they've been around much longer, whether it's mathematics or science or social studies or literature. And we can learn from the ways in which those disciplines have approached various aspects of teaching and learning topics in those disciplines and sort of bring them over to computing. Now, of course, mathematics is a very proximal discipline. And it has this idea of concepts and practices and things like that. Mathematical thinking, in some sense, has overlaps with computational thinking, too. And one of the goals of this project was to focus on concepts in in computing, which are pretty foundational to all of programming and which we know from prior research students often struggle with. 
And these are ideas of abstraction, ideas of variables and, and expressions, which are often a very ignored or very superficially treated topic. And when you think about all the time that is spent in mathematics around operators and expressions, because they are so, so integral to mathematical processes and thinking, we sort of often do a very, you know, give them the short shift when it comes to computing. And that was one of the reasons why we focused on that. And the assessment that we developed was really A, to be used as a pre-post in the research. But we wanted to do a fairly often research projects that have developed some sort of assessment to measure learning pre to post and intervention, especially when the research is around examining empirically, examining you know, the results, the outcome of an intervention. But this one, we felt that it would have a life and use outside of the research project as well. Mm -hmm. And so we approached the task of designing the assessment with a little more intention and with a little more, it was sort of an important pillar of the research, just to put it, you know, uh, succinctly, it was, it was a big part of the research to design this assessment. And so we adopted a very formal assessment design process called evidence-centered design, where you sort of start with what are the claims we want to make about student learning? What sort of evidence do you gather to make those claims? And then how do you design the tasks and whatever it is that students will do in order to, you know, sort of gather that evidence and make those claims? As with curriculum design, you often start with learning goals. This is what we want students to learn and therefore this is what we will have them do. In assessment design, the learning goals are sort of converted into what are called assessment-facing goals, which are focal knowledge, skills, and, and attributes, FKSAs. So you'd start with a very formal definition, and that sort of comes from the field, from whatever it is that your intervention is. You sort of get feedback on those FKSAs. Those, key, those keep getting refined. But those become your, your compass for designing the tasks and then making, you know, those evidence claims. So it's all sort of very well aligned and tied up. And so ideas of psychometry, you know, we don't want to go into the idea of psychometry too deeply, but there is this idea of validity when you are assessing something, when you say that this is assessing so-and-so, is it really assessing so-and-so? Right, right. And, and assessment is often, you know, called, it, it is an art and a science. And this is a science part of it, but of course, the art of it is sort of basically knowing, you know, gathering from experience from the field, et cetera, of what, what it is and how it is you want to assess, et cetera. And often projects just go with what is known as face validity, whereas in this particular project, we went a little deeper and did a few other reliability calculations and things like that. What it ended up doing was actually surface misconceptions that students have. That was a big aha, because when you're piloting, you realize that, wow, you know, you have students doing think alouds and reading the assessment, interpreting it. And, you know, it's, it's the process where you want to tweak the language. You want to make sure that, you know, students are understanding what the question means, etc. But their responses gave us insights into the kinds of problems they have in their understanding itself. And so that gets fed into your multiple choice options, et cetera, because now you know that this is often something students think of as how the loop works or whatever. 
this is a new field and we have to have a sense for what it is we are teaching, why we are teaching and how we are teaching in order to be able to make this a mature topic of study for teaching and learning. And so the, the cycles of feedback are very important. And I have always viewed assessment not in that standardized, punitive, strange way that that assessment is used to assessment as measurement and feedback. And you cannot improve on something unless you have measured it. And so, and you cannot improve on things unless you get some form of feedback of whether what you're teaching is indeed what students are learning or something close to it, whatever your learning goals are. If it's missing the mark, why is that? Is it a problem of pedagogy? It is, is it a problem of trying to teach something that maybe ought to be taught at a later grade? You know, there's, there's lots of considerations. And given that computing is a new field, you want to have these feedback cycles. And the feedback cycle, of course, works in concentric circles. It happens at the classroom level, which I hope we can talk about as part of the next paper and this broader conversation of formative assessment that we are trying to work on, sort of building out for the field. But it also happens at, say, a curriculum level. At the end of a term, if a teacher wants, or a district or a school wants to get a sense for how the curriculum worked, at an aggregate level, not at an individual student level. What did the students learn? What can we say about student learning? One of the things I think about is sort of these standards have been established, right, for K through 12. How do we know that's the right time to introduce each of those standards? Because we haven't done it yet, right? We haven't done it yet. And we can't, exactly. like, we can't I mean, punish students because maybe we got the standards wrong. <laughs> right, right. And, and maybe because we are perhaps trying to teach them loops and variables without really teaching them enough about operators and expressions. And so should this topic have been dealt with in a slightly different way? I mean, we've put this as a standard that students will have understood or should understand or know these things by the end of this grade, but are we doing the right things in order for them to get there? Right. And so you're right. And the standards have pretty much been defined on the basis of um, literature, you know, whatever people have sort of known about these topics until the time that the standards are developed. And I do remember that uh, when the framework, when the K-12 CS framework was being uh, sort of articulated, which became one of the documents on, on which a lot of the standards emerged, that effort was being led by CSTA and code.org and ACM. There were several groups of us that met for two, three meetings, and there was this shared document that all of us were commenting on. And, and a lot of the time you would hear this, we don't have enough research to say this or make this claim that this should be taught or this shouldn't be taught or this should be taught at this grade level or this grade level. I was part of the commenting during the standards. I wasn't one of the standard writers. I can imagine that they had these conversations too, that we don't know this for a fact. Do we, are we making an assumption? And I think those are the things that sort of do evolve with time. I think what standards help is provide some sort of a sense for what ought to be taught. And to that extent, you do want, and teachers, the way teaching and learning happens, at least in the US, teachers do look to standards. The existence of standards becomes 
a sort of an argument for a subject to be taught. I mean, if there are no, there are no standards, why are we teaching this? Right, you know, that right. kind of argument, you want to counter that. So there were several reasons for the standards to emerge, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the standards could be off, they could be revised, they could, and they ought to be revised. I think subjects like mathematics and science have had cycles of these kinds of things over decades. And perhaps that'll happen in computing as well. And given that computing is such a fast changing field compared to the others, I have a feeling there will be revisions sooner rather than later because people are now talking about where's the data science happening and where's the AI and those things were not even in the, you know, they were sort of in the periphery and emerging, but suddenly they have become center stage in a way that nobody was thinking about them at that time. So um, let me just quickly bring up the other, this is a chapter, Assessing Algorithmic and Computational Thinking in K-12 Lessons from a Middle School Classroom. And here I thought it was, so the quote I took, I uh, want to highlight here is, desired outcomes for current CS initiatives increase students' conceptual growth and also effective measures such as identity development, motivation, and engagement. And I think it is so interesting. I think it was this one where the summative assessment was both sort of an exam-based traditional access assessment, as well as an open project, and how students who may not have done as well on the assessment were really engaged in the project, and they learned some CS. And that's, to me, like, that's my conundrum, because for me, I feel like, especially in K-8, I just want students to have a good experience with it so they don't, like, reject it <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I'm just curious about how, yeah. how you feel so, about those so, two and, things. And, and that was a, that very thing that you just spoke about was one of my biggest ahas that came out of, of that dissertation work. I had very clear in, clear in my mind that there would be formative assessment throughout, that I would want to probe students' understanding throughout, through various means, whether it was those short quizzes whether it was small directed programming tasks, whether it was small things like Parsons puzzles, whether it was small things like, you know, just a small survey to students probing how they were liking a certain project versus, you know, things like that. That's where, you know, those affective measures and, and getting a sense even during the intervention for me, since it was a research-based curriculum and a research study, trying to get a sense for how they're enjoying things, how, because one of my goals for, and this is where we go back to what are our goals for teaching programming. Our goals are not to just develop their computing skills. I think this has been articulated everywhere that we want them to develop interest and motivation. We want to broaden the pipeline. We want more children becoming interested. And so how do you bring traditionally underrepresented groups into computing, whether it's girls or, minoritized populations, how do we teach in ways that will get them interested and sort of broaden this field that has traditionally left groups out? And so those were all very well articulated as goals. And so how do you design a curriculum for that? And how do you make sure that your curriculum is, ensure, is, is getting, a, getting back to this point of feedback and you know, measurement and probes in order to know that you're on track? Are they enjoying it? there was this piece which was about teaching them that computing is everywhere. And this was interesting videos from, from the movie industry and from here and there, which was showing computing 
in, in various forms. So I would just probe them, which one did you like the best? You know, it was, it was, it's a form of curriculum design to, to mm -hmm. be able to know so that the next time you're teaching that course as a teacher, you'll pick the ones that the kids enjoyed and maybe try a new one out and see how that one, because maybe there's a new one available or you may find something that you hadn't discovered before with any of these, or it's, it's the same with project ideas. Often you find that students didn't like one way of how you approached or a topic for a project or whatever, and, and they came up with some ideas. And in the next iteration, those ideas become the ideas you suggest because, you know, it's an ever-evolving process of curriculum, even as a classroom teacher, not just a researcher who's trying to iterate on a curriculum design. And so as a classroom teacher, you always take feedback from one cohort of students and sort of try to modify. And, and that's, that's where those probes work. And these probes can be informal. I mean, as a teacher, you know that this particular comment generated a lot of laughter or whatever. So you probably, you know, somehow insert that joke the next time. It's a very informal probe. You never sort of did a test in order to get that feedback, but you got it informally. But there are other ways, other topics and other things where your, your probes need to be a little more deliberate and formal in terms of conceptual learning, in terms of miscon misconceptions that you felt some students had in the first time around and you had to do X, Y, and Z in order to clarify those things. And so, you know, how did you get to know that they had those misconceptions? It was through probes or whatever. In that particular project, I was very intentional about these probes throughout the process to sort of inform the curriculum design, but also the summative assessment. I was very clear that I would have the summative was sort of a pre-post. So from a research perspective, but that summative assessment has often been just, just the other day, somebody, some PhD student asked me for access to that assessment for their PhD. And so it's an assessment that sort of might get adapted and used in various ways. But for me, I was very clear that I also wanted students to bring in their own ideas and this open choice project. The conundrum, I think, that you mentioned that teachers often face is should, should we even have just an open choice project or should we even have some sort of a formal, even if it's a one period, you know, half an hour quiz that students do. And I think that varies from teacher to teacher. I know that those open projects, et cetera, become hard to score you can get a sense for student engagement, why they chose a certain topic, those kinds of things I got through those artifact-based interviews with each of the students. I had this conversation, why did you choose this project? What problems did you have with it? And so you get so much about how students were connecting the project. Halloween had just happened and so I wanted to create this scary thing and I'd just seen this movie and I wanted to do this. My brother likes to do play these kind of games. So, I did, so you see the connections they're making with their home, their lives, their communities, their cultures. And that's something that's so much a part of the conversation these days, how to help students, how to bring culturally relevant ideas and pedagogies into the classroom. And I think open-ended projects are great for that. But you can't constantly, in my view, have open-ended projects throughout because you want to give students feedback to not just get feedback for yourself. You want to get give students feedback. And those kinds of instruments as measurement instruments are very hard to sort of score. I know of teachers that would give the project and not even score them. They just do it and they move on. I'm raising my hand. That's me. <laughs> this was not uncommon at all. From your, reading your research, what I really realized is like I would never have thought about doing multiple choice stuff before. 
And I see now, like if I did that as formative assessment, that would be so valuable to know where students are thinking about loops, what they're thinking about variables, what they're thinking yeah. about that. And especially since it's formative, it's not, it's, it's not, again, punitive feedback I'm giving them. And it's just like, oh, it looks like we, you know, we're having and, a sense and it of understanding becomes part here. of the classroom culture. Exactly. They don't, it's no pressure. Some teachers, we have now, this has now become a full NSF funded project that Brian Tuarek, uh, you know, of CSTA and I are on. And we have created this entire series of formative assessment, you know, modules for teachers which sort of go through the types of assessment that you can do, what sort of feedback, what sort of design you can, how you design or how you pick formative assessment. We've created this repository of formative assessments, et cetera. And a lot of the time the teachers say, but how do you know that? And especially in the higher grades, they don't take it seriously. So, you know, if they're just ticking something without thinking, that usually isn't, you know, you can create a, a classroom culture where you can start with a little bit of let's do a check-in. I want to know what you all know or not know. I think it's the tone the teacher sets. It's not, they're not getting stressed about it. They won't be just marking things willy-nilly just because it's a multiple choice. They will think through it. You give them 10 minutes to do it or whatever. And it becomes, and so in that Vela project where I designed the summative assessment with the previous paper, we actually, in that curriculum, had a bunch of exit tickets and review sheets that the teachers would do either at the end of the class or at the beginning of class just to get a sense. And that's not even part of those assessments that are designed in that. That's one assessment done at one time. But there are these small, small things that were sort of similar to the other curriculum, which are totally meant as probes for conceptual learning. But as that chapter talks about, and also the chapter in the A to Z handbook on formative assessment that I co-wrote with uh, Kelly Powers and Vicky Sedgwick, we talk about various forms. It's what I have called at the end of my dissertation or whatever, this system of assessments. It needs to be this balanced portfolio of various types of probes that are getting at various things. When your goals are interest and motivation, identity development, conceptual learning, you can't measure that with one instrument is what I've it's what I realized you have to have this buffet of measures and probes that give you the feedback that you want and want to give back to the students too when I was doing my dissertation there was this paper that or not paper it was a report that came out from the national academies which are often so well done and it was called Education for Life and Work, uh, Developing Transferable Skills for the 21st Century. It was obviously a committee that worked on it, but the main report was authored by Jim Pellegrino and Margaret Hilton. If you look up that report, you'll see that had a huge impact on my thinking of what was they were calling it deeper learning and 21st century skills. But the idea was that every curriculum rather should focus on disciplinary content skills, thinking skills and practices and problem solving, interpersonal skills, communication and collaboration, and intrapersonal skills, which is identity development, persistence, mindset, all those kinds of things. And if you see our CS curricula are often always talking about those things. And so I feel like our curricula and our assessments have to be looking at all those things. And if you're teaching all of them, you ought to be giving students some sense that you're measuring those two. And I feel one other goal for assessment other than feedback, it's a signal to the learner about what is important. 
when you say, let me see whether you did, whether you've got this, even if it's a thing like collaboration, if you sort of say, this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to check on uh, with, with in your final project, how you collaborate. They suddenly realize that collaboration and how we work together is something this teacher cares about. This is something that's important for this particular thing that we're doing and we're learning. If you just say you guys work together and give me a final project, they may not do as serious a job. And so I think it's a signal to the learners of what is important and what is valued. And people often say you measure what you treasure or whatever. And, and But I think that is one part of it. The other part of it is letting the learners know what it is that you treasure and what is important. Yeah. And so when you think that all these are important, if you say your interest and your motivation in the subject is, is important, that we build it, and we're, we, we want you to be excited about CS by the end of this, you know, it sort of shows itself in various ways. If you say these are important concepts that I want you to learn, and these are going to be important for no matter what programming you do, there are several languages out there, there's several, but these ideas are foundational. We want you to understand what it means, what an algorithm means, how you develop. When you sort of make that sense of importance of that particular thing, aspect is something you want to convey to students through the probes. Let's see whether you got it. You know, it's important that you understand how variables work. It's an important idea. It's a signal to the learner. And I think that is one other thing. And, and I think these standardized assessments just kill all of that. It's about you teach them project-based learning, but then you're asking them questions that sort of would work well through some sort of road learning of ideas. There's such a mismatch there right. that, that you could just look at <laughs> they have no respect for that assessment. Yeah. The teachers yeah. have yeah. no respect for that assessment. And so what is it good for? An assessment that you feel is, is something that conveys your values. It's, an, it's a normative thing. You want students, you want the learning to, this learning to happen. You want students to develop and flourish from the disciplinary ideas perspective, from the thinking and problem solving skills perspective, from the perspective of interest and you know building a sense of identity around the discipline all of that goes by the wayside when you look at those kinds of dry tests to me i think if one had had a choice it should be formative assessment if you have to because that's what impacts the learning process and gives feedback to the teacher and learner i think summative assessments have a goal not uh, not for individual students but for curriculum evaluation perspective from the perspective of the teacher revising how she taught things at the end of the year, you get a sense for, you know, you even get a sense from students' projects. And I've written a paper on that, on what do students learn from open-ended projects? How do you get a sense for that? So we analyzed in that same district where we did all the Vela studies and their final projects, which were done alongside, again, alongside this assessment that we talked about in the first paper, the Vela assessment, they did final projects there. And we, in fact, analyzed 100 projects closely just to get a sense for when a student is given the freedom to work on a project, what sort of projects do they choose? How do they vary by gender? What sort of concepts are they using? What concepts are missing in most of the projects because they're maybe harder to incorporate? And so we did this deep dive and that's, again, a paper. I can send you a link to those. Yeah, that'd you be know, great. Any paper that I've referenced, I'll give you a, a <laughs> link to that. 
but that one gives gives a sense you know you see some gender differences in the projects they choose games versus stories versus apps it's very fascinating to sort of look at a large group of like multiple classrooms worth of and different students of different backgrounds or whatever and yet some sort of a picture emergence of the kinds of things that they do in their final projects and um, it's all fascinating i mean to me like as you may have seen i i come at the assessment from a very different kind of it's not the punitive standardized weird assessment it, it's all these different things you know that give you a sense for what it is that students have learned and that's what the measurement is aimed at that's great so i think you've given a lot of big takeaways for k8 educators what about for researchers in this field? If, you had, if I told you to wrap up in uh, two or three minutes, what would be your big takeaways for research? For researchers in K-12, yes, I would say pay more attention to formative. So far, a lot of research projects are really just building pre-post measures because that's something that we need to report. It sort of gives a sense for how the intervention worked. I think there is a lot more research. I designed this framework that I shared last year on the kinds of things that need to be done for formative assessment. I would love for research to sort of go into that. What sort of assessments work? Which assessments surface misconceptions? Which assessments are good for formative but not great for summative? I mean, those are the kinds of things I think the field needs. And of course, I think there's a lot of research that's being done no, well, not a, I don't know if it's a lot, but a lot of people I know are looking at automating ways of using learning analytics and things like that to gauge. I don't think the field is there yet. And so there's a lot we can still learn about measuring computational thinking skills or programming skills through just automated means. But I think gauging is one thing. What feedback you can give to a learner is something else. Formative especially is all about feedback. And so if you are unable to give feedback to a learner from your formative assessment uh, instrument, then what good is it? Is it pinpointed enough to give, make them help them improve? Well, Suchi, thank you so much for taking time with me today. This has been wonderful. I know I've learned a lot. And I will be linking to all these resources that you shared. All right. Thank you so much, Kim. Thanks for this opportunity. It's wonderful to meet you. It's wonderful to have this conversation. 